holy cow, how do you guys do this with the time zone? So what time is it in New Zealand right now? Uh, it's 8 a.m. Holy cow. All right. And in Denmark, it's probably what, like yeah, 7 p.m.? No, it's actually uh, 8 p.m. 8 p.m. Holy yeah. cow. I've never yeah. never seen this. You guys got three continents covered. All right. I love it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we had a guy on from, uh, he does his own uh, assisted development, and he is in the Gambia. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, you guys, I love it. Diehards. Welcome back to another episode of the Hoops Temple Podcast. Y'all know me, Nathan Schwartz. Uh, joining me from Denmark, we have Nico Lassen. Hello, everybody. And from down under, our wonderful New Zealander, Dylan Williamson. G'day, g'day. All right, let's get into the podcast. What do we... Oh, I forgot someone. And today we have a very special fourth guest. Uh, we're going to kind of have to Game of Thrones this up. We had our short Jon Snow-like introductions. Uh, and now for the, the Khaleesi of introductions, former senior writer for Sports Illustrated, current NBA writer for the Washington Post, one of the few NBA reporters in the bubble, author of the definitive book on the NBA bubble, Bubble Ball, co-host of the premium NBA podcast, Greatest Fall Talk, a na- natural parks and Lego enthusiast, and the former co-host of the D'Antonio Wingcast, Blazer's Edge podcast. How are you doing, Mr. Ben Gulliver? Well, I was doing great uh, until you told me that you dug up the D'Antonio Wingcast archives. Now, that is a deep, deep dive on research. So is this a trap? Have I just walked into like, you know, an intercontinental <laughs> trap here where you're going to pull back things I might have said on a homemade podcast using freeconferencecall.com. That was the service that we used actually to record that. Me and Kelvin Pelton, uh, this is probably back in what, 2008, 2009, 2010, sometime back in that area. We spent weeks laboring over that name, D'Antonio Wingcast. We chose it because D'Antonio Wingfield was one of the few players who played for both the Seattle Supersonics, Kevin's hometown team, and the Portland Trailblazers, my hometown team. We had to overlook some off-court incidents, let's be honest, when it came, when it came to Tontonio Wingfield when we oh, named God. that thing. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's a nice uh, blast from the past. So hit me. What was the craziest thing that we said on that show? Right, let's let's dig right into the good stuff. You know, there weren't too many terrible, terrible takes. You were very high on Dante uh, Cunningham. Oh, yeah, yeah. Love Dante Cunningham. <laughs> I reached out to a lot of your former co-hosts and uh, people that you've worked with in the past to try to ask them, hey, do you have any wonderful stories about Ben that would be nice for us to ask him about? And I got a lot of generic praise. I know you're not a fan of generic praise. Keep that circle tight. Yeah, that's good. (laughs) Uh, Michael DePod Pena did respond Uh saying that we need to ask you why you hate Jason Tatum so much. The only thing I could respond to him with was after listening to so much of the the wing cast, it's that because he wasn't Dante Cunningham, which I got a I got an LOL. Yeah, no, look, there's a natural progression as you kind of work through your career, right? I mean, you start uh, young, bushy-tailed, whatever that phrase is. And I think when I started at Blazer's Edge, I was about 24. And being in the building covering those games was just so exciting. And then that fan base, you know, I'm sure you guys know, I mean, it's diehard fans. And back then, there was no real Portland Timbers split within, like, the local fan community. So it was all Blazers all the time. 
And nothing got the fan base more excited than the young guys. You know, I remember printing up T-shirts that said Team Bayless, you know, for Jared Bayless. Like, he was going to be this future star. And there was a talking point back then. You know, the Blazers had taken him. They preferred him over Russell Westbrook and some of the other point guards in that draft. Uh, you know, so I think irrational optimism is one of those things that, uh, you know, it it lingers to this day. And I think as you get older and more experienced, hopefully wiser, but actually maybe just more cynical, um, you start to you know, be on the other sides of some of those conversations. So I could picture myself at 37 now lecturing my 24-year-old self, come on, chill out, Dante Cunningham, he's a second-round pick. He's not going to be that good. You got to lay off the excitement. But uh, Cunningham was an interesting player a little bit before his time with the stretch as a three and four. Uh, you know, He could shoot it a little bit. I think if he came in now, they'd have him shoot way more than he did. Ultimately, probably not strong enough defensively to to hold his spot. But uh, he was a a rare nice find. Actually, it was kind of a tough years of drafting for Portland. I mean, they took Nolan Smith, who I remember just not working out whatsoever. Uh, you know, obviously the Greg Oden decision was sort of the defining one of that era. So you know, we you had to find something to smile about during all those injuries and MRI MRI updates and everything else. It's funny that you mentioned Nolan Smith. Because oh, yeah. I was just listening. So I listened to the entirety of what's available on Apple Podcasts, which is episodes 14 through 37. Okay. <laughs> which spanned from 2009 uh, to 2013 in off season because some of the, the recording was a bit spotty. It seemed like you guys were hit or miss. Yeah, no, we weren't the most dedicated. We're not like you guys, you know, cranking out these like time slots that work for three different continents. We were uh, a little bit more lackadaisical, but there was no money in podcasts back then. You know, nobody knew what they were doing. Well, we're still trying to figure out how to get money from the podcast now. There's money in this? (laughs) Nate? (laughs) Don't tell them that. Nice. Uh, (laughs) That's how we got international uh, labor here so cheaply. (laughs) outsourcing oh i get it now i understand this whole thing okay okay i'm glad you mentioned nolan smith because you did mention him on one of the later episodes saying that his negative 17 in three minutes will go down in the history uh, as one of the greatest oddities of sports it's right up there with jordan shot and i forget what your other example was but you said you wanted to tell your grandkids about it someday so would you care to tell our listeners Yeah, no kids yet, so no grandkids in the offing. But um, no, it was, if you want to read one of the meanest things ever written on the internet, go find my game recap from that game. Because I basically proposed that if he wanted to have the same impact that he had during that three-minute stretch, where I think he was just getting picked by Brandon Jennings. Basically, he was trying to dribble the ball up the half court, and he just got picked six by Brandon Jennings like three times in a row. So I proposed that he should have made it easier for everybody on the court and just shot free throws into his own hoop like every 10 seconds, and that would have had the same impact as what he was doing. And I just remember at that moment you know, this was a guy, you know, Duke, Coach K had recommended him to Nate McMillan at the time. He was kind of this prized rookie. And, you know, the Blazers had passed on Kenneth Freed. It was this very, like, debated thing on the, you know, the basketball dork internet. You know, we're going to get this high PER guy. You know, he'd be great for the front court. And Nolan Smith, I mean, you know, bless his heart. Nice guy. I think he works at Duke now. But 
just could not get it done. And it was one of the most embarrassing sort of one-on-one matchups that I could ever remember seeing. And I just completely unloaded on him after the game. I remember asking him, like, what happened out there? And he had no response. And it was actually probably, like, rude to even ask him, like, what happened. I mean, in hindsight, I probably wouldn't have done that given how ugly and bad it was. You know, pretty much the worst night of his professional life. Um, You don't see that. Uh, anymore these days. You know, I mean, I can't really remember a point guard. I mean, minus 17 in three minutes is hard to do. And he was responsible for like all of the minus, like every single thing that happened bad, it was his fault. It, it was rough. Everybody has a bad day though. Uh, I'm glad that you kind of said that's something you wouldn't do because when you said that you would come on, we were uh, a little bit shocked to say the least. You know, we do this for, for fun, for the love of the game. We didn't actually expect anyone with any legitimate credibility to to come on with us and discuss sports. So we we're a little intimidated. We're like, all right, we've got to find some of Ben's worst takes. <laughs> yeah, just to find oh. some common ground, you know? <laughs> yeah, let's let's dig through the history. Oh, no. It's a credit to you, but there weren't too many terrible takes. We, we found like a 2012 guys who will be future all-stars and your number one pick was Steph Curry. And we're like, ah, all right, well. Tough call there. Yeah, Batum at two was a little rough. Yeah, Batum, he's another guy. Portland fans love Nick Batum. And I definitely got in on that uh, excitement as well. He was the chase down prince for a while. You know, when LeBron was like peaking as chase town block artist, Nicholas Batum was like number two in the league. I remember the New York Times did this huge story. LeBron, greatest chase down block artist in the NBA. And like explained how he does it, everything. And I did like a follow up piece being like, hey, Nicholas Batum is pretty good at this, too. And I think it got like precisely point zero 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 one percent as much attention as the LeBron piece, which was like very revolutionary at the time. It was a great piece. I think it was Jonathan Abrams who wrote that. Uh, but my lawyers have scrubbed most of the mistakes off the Internet. So, you know, if, if you're going to probably have to dig pretty hard to find them. Well, I thought I, thought I had you. Uh, I was, I was scrolling through Sports Illustrated and I saw a picture of Anya, Andrea Bargnani. Oh, the headline, Toronto has found their superstar. Oh, and it turned out the piece was about Masai who's dumping Bargnani for next to nothing. <laughs> and you were complimenting Masai for having oh, yeah. the balls to pull off this move. We thought we thought you got you. That, that would have been a real disaster. I'll tell you this. I was actually in pretty early on the worship Maasai stuff because uh, in Denver, I don't think he gets enough credit for what he did in Denver. I mean, he had a really nice run there and a lot of proactive moves. And a lot of what you saw him do in Toronto in terms of building that title team, it was like he sort of laid the groundwork in Denver, got his feet wet and got to a bigger market and got to, uh, you know, I wouldn't say like, obviously not a prestigious franchise, but a place that could sort of be a destination for some guys once they they built up their culture and man he ran with it he was a real game changer i mean you're taking me back to like a really fun time 2012 2013 i mean nba twitter was much smaller um the stand culture that has developed around some of these executives really wasn't as ingrained back then i remember seeing that bargnani trade and just you know you go through the advanced stats on basketball reference as i'm sure you guys do and you're just looking up and down his thing and it's like does this guy do anything well? Like, what is it that he's supposed to be doing? You know, and inefficient scoring, I guess, was sort of his uh, calling card. But man, Bargnani was a tough, tough watch. And, you know, very early on, you guys ever remember that viral video, the, the ball clip, you know, where he's like, I, I don't know. There's this different, sorry, that was terrible. But there was other moments where like he would do like these post-game interviews and just not be engaged whatsoever and you're trying to think like how do they even sell this guy to their fan base so kind of a tough era that uh, Masai inherited all around but you know it 
look how far he's turned it around. And now they got Scotty Barnes, you know, to, to be excited about. So um, I think I might've had Toronto actually this year as a draft loser. I might've, I don't know if you guys saw that one or not. You got to go back and double check. Maybe I pulled back at the last moment. I really wanted them to take Suggs. I was in that camp and uh, hopefully we deleted that off the internet. I don't know if we did. I feel like there's a lot of controversy around Scotty Barnes. Like a lot of people were having, having Scotty Barnes very low. Only a few, Uh, people I saw like pre-draft that actually thought Scotty Barnes was worth picking up in like the top five. Is he already the best player in, in Toronto, or at least the the one with the most potential? I mean, I think people forget about Pascal just because he's been injured and, and he's a yeah. really good player. I mean, a couple of years ago, last year he had the numbers, but it wasn't a very successful season. I think nobody was really happy. Pascal was amazing. I mean, borderline all NBA two seasons ago. And I don't think you just lose that talent. Now, does he come back to earth a little bit? Maybe. Is he going to be one of these guys who struggles a little bit with his efficiency because Kyle's not there anymore? Yeah, for sure. But I, I don't want to crown Scotty Barnes yet. What I would say, though, is like he's going to be the franchise. I mean, if he's not that already, uh, then he will be soon. I feel very similar with Scotty Barnes and Evan Mobley, actually, for Cleveland, where it's like they're coming into situations where there are, are other established guys or players who thought, hey, maybe I'm going to really be a centerpiece. And now the organizations are going to be over the next 12 months reorienting around those two guys. And it's sort of like, do you make Scotty Barnes better? Do you fit with Scotty Barnes? Okay, you get to stay. Same deal in, in Cleveland. Like, do you work with Mobley? Do you kind of share his work ethic? Um, are you going to be able to kind of make him better? And and do you, you know, uh, I guess pull his offense out of him. I mean, one of my concerns in Cleveland's like they got all these ball dominant guards and Mobley. He's like one of their best playmakers and he's like one of the most unselfish passers. Make sure the ball's in his hands, not just, you know, being dribbled the air out of the ball by Colin Sexton every single night. And so I think you're going to see some of that in both those spots where it's like those guys are, are ramping up more quickly than we thought. And they're going to be sort of that centerpiece, you know, uh, workaround type guy you know, more quickly than we thought too. Like I could see a Pascal trade, you know, where it's like, all right, you know, we're ready to just cash in some assets, go a little bit younger and build this thing around, uh, you know, Scotty Barnes. I don't know if it's going to happen immediately, but you know, no one would be shocked if that happened in the next 12 months. Would you see a potential Cleveland Toronto trade moving off Pascal to free up some more room in that front court for OG and Scotty Barnes? And maybe uh, Cleveland moves off of Garland or Sexton. Ooh, that's interesting. Um, I don't think they want to trade Garland. They really want the Garland thing to work. Now, Sexton, I, I just don't see it with Sexton. You know, I, I think I put him in my top 100 this year. I think he's just got the emptiest numbers in the league. You know, he's basically a one-dimensional scorer, doesn't really guard anyone, doesn't really have a position. And so I thought it was smart of them to not extend him. Um, and, you know, I think some of that's going to be contractual when they get to next summer. It's like, you know, are they going to have to pay him? How does that really work out? Does that make it so it's difficult to trade him? They've been saying all the right things about Sexton, but I don't know how they've had the patience that they've had there uh, without really getting much in the way of results because their team offense efficiency is just never good no matter how many points he scores and he doesn't keep his teammates involved so I guess to short answer keep one of those guys away from Scotty Barnes let this guy have the basketball <laughs> don't uh, don't put that weight around his ankle well maybe we should move into the top 100 in here because we took on the endeavor this is our second time doing it we did it uh, once in 2018 with a few more of our friends, and it was an absolute mess. What have you learned over the years of doing top 100s? What, take us through a little bit of what your process is. Well, for years, I did it with Rob Mahoney at Sports Illustrated. I actually liked having kind of a trusted sounding board or you know, a partner in crime to kind of go back and forth and really dive into these players. 
I've been doing it by myself for the last couple of years, and I find it's like a less rewarding experience to do it by yourself, and it, it, it becomes a little bit more subjected to your own personal preferences, whereas if you do have two people, even if they kind of share general, you know, uh, philosophical approaches to the sport like Rob and I do, you know, at least you're having two sets of eyes on it. So I think the number one thing to keep in mind is you're never going to make everybody happy. The number two thing to keep in mind is it's very easy to underrate guys making the jump from year one to year two, year two to year three. And no matter how many times I've done this, I consistently underrate those kinds of guys. Uh, the other thing is, you know, somebody like a Julius Randle will just come out of nowhere last year and make you look stupid. And you just have to learn to accept that and not beat yourself up over it. Because as a perfectionist, it's like looking back and being like, man, did I really not have Randall in the top 100 last year? How did I screw that up? And, you know, it's easy to remember that he completely transformed his uh, reputation over the course of the last 12 months. And so, you know, that's a credit to him. It's not a discredit to the lists. And then I think also what I've learned is you just have to be thinking about these questions year round all the time. Like you can't just touch, you know, you, you want to do your extensive research process, looking at numbers, weighing things, you know, at once a year, but you really want to be asking yourself like during the playoffs, it's a good example, Kevin Durant versus Giannis. If you switch them in last year's playoff series, what happens, right? If you put both of them in a vacuum with similar teammates, what happens? What's the result of the series? When Giannis goes on to win the title, obviously the hype around him is going to be as big as it could possibly get. When Kevin Durant goes out because his teammates are injured, he's going to kind of fall by the wayside. And so you want to kind of try to you know, apply that vacuum test is what we've always called it, which is like imagine these guys um, on a random team with a random set of uh, teammates how successful and what's their impact going to look like? Are they going to be able to deliver victories during the regular season? Are they going to be healthy enough to make it through 82 games? Are they going to be able to take over and lead a playoff team? And then do they have enough versatility to their game where they're going to be able to beat different type of matchups as you go through um, the postseason? And the last thing I, I pretty much always do is err on the side of established players, you know, like respecting the throne. The people who have earned it, they get it until someone takes it from them. Don't rush people out the side door um, because, you know, a lot of times, especially in this day and age where guys are playing almost till they're 40 at a very high level, uh, you can kind of, you know, overcorrect by saying, oh, this guy's washed or this guy's done and, and wind up, you know, uh, looking a little silly. I actually fell victim to that with LeBron a couple years ago where I had him down at three behind Kawhi. Sure enough, they win the title in the bubble. He's the best player in the bubble. And, you know, I, I wound up underrating LeBron. But, uh, you know, it's it's a fun process. What was your uh, – how did you guys put this thing together? And how did it differ from what I just described? For me, at least, the, the starting point was just like – bringing together you know a lot of these advanced metrics you can sort of find the the commonality and sort of get this group of players and then from there it's just like man moving a lot moving around a lot of um cells i guess but yeah the the one thing that you said that really stuck out to me that i agree with and we'll we'll be thinking about more next year is those first and second year guys taking a leap so like one of the first ones that immediately going through your list i was like man how, how am i this dumb how'd i miss that one it was like anthony edwards Jordan Paul, I'm like, man, how do I leave these guys off? Well, I, I got burned on that with uh, Tyler Hero. You know, it's the same deal because he took a little bit of a step back last year. I saw some of the preseason buzz going, and then I was like, well, you know, he still has to prove it. And then you look Hero versus Poole, it hasn't been close. I mean, Hero should be on and Poole should be off. So you do try to, like, you know, 
pick a few younger players who have a chance to really break through. And in some of those cases, you actually have to take into account role, right? Like Anthony Edwards was obviously going to have a gigantic green light coming into this season, right? Coming off of his rookie year. And it's actually same deal with LaMelo. It's another great example. So they move Graham out. Well, you know, you can tell like just, you know, even though we're, we're trying to focus on the vacuum, what does it look like? It's like, well, he's not in a vacuum. He's going to be on a team where the ball's in his hands constantly. He's going to be able to score 25, 30 points way more often than he did last year. Uh, he's going to be the center of attention. Usage rate's going to go up. And so you do want to kind of factor those types of things in. But it's tricky, man. And, you know, because development is not linear. All the scouts will tell you that. Like, you never know when a guy's going to pop. Even last night, talking to Steven Silas at the Rockets game, you know, he said, look, I've seen every kind of rookie experience, guys who start really fast and then peter off, guys who uh, start horribly and turn into superstars, guys who might be in the middle and just sort of go like this, you know, for the first couple of years until they really find who they are. And of course, he was sort of defending Jalen Green and, and, and how tough it's been for Jalen Green here in the uh, the first couple of weeks of his rookie year. And so, you know, it's... There's no science to it. Uh, it's it's kind of like, you know, in some cases you're just throwing darts. But, you know, in terms of the advanced numbers, like I, I look at win shares usually. I, I take into account player efficiency rating. I know some people still don't like that, but it's just, you know, as a general benchmark. I like real plus minus, and then I use um, warp. You know, Kevin Pelton, who we talked about earlier mm-hmm. on the D'Antonio Wincast, he does warp. So I tend to line all of those up into a spreadsheet, and then I look at last year's top 100. And then if anybody else has put out their list prior to me doing it, I'll put that in as well just to see like, okay, here's like just other data points in terms of how people are looking at it. Um, And then I'll get into my like, you know, nitty gritty ranking, uh, you know, process. And one really other tricky thing about this, and I'm sure you guys found this was the relative value of positions, right? So you might have a player like Jonas Valanciunas, who's like incredibly productive, huge stats, looks really good on a lot of the advanced metrics, uh, but he's this big body traditional center, right? And then how do you compare him versus, say, a three and D wing like a Mikhail Bridges? Mikhail Bridges is going to be uh, valuable in every playoff series on any team. He fits with anyone. Like there's just a real versatility to his game and he makes his teammates better, right? Whereas Jonas uh, Jonas Valanciunas, he's finishing plays most of the time, right? So, uh, you know, one guy might have way better numbers. One guy actually might look better on some of the advanced stats than others, but you do have to kind of step away from those numbers sometimes and be like, all right, well, you know, in the finals, who would you rather have? That one's pretty easy, right? So my ranking tries to reflect that as well. We got into a big debate kind of surrounding that between Mikhail Bridges and DeMontis Sabonis because Sabonis is a very low-grade one. He's you, ha- you coined the Paul Millsap exchange of a guy that would be an average player in the West or good average that's now an all-star in the East, and he's the Paul Millsap exchange of Nikola Jokic, basically, right. going to the Eastern Conference. and. Uh, I am very high. I love what he can do passing and uh, his aggression on the boards. But uh, Dylan here, who liked the versatility of Mikhail Bridges and got me to move him up uh, a good 20 spots on my rankings. And I think I talked uh, Dylan into moving up Sabonis. So I definitely get what you're saying about how it's nice to have kind of someone else to do these rankings with. You know, there were guys that we each completely left off because of some of our blind spots. Uh, Nico was calling for Miles Bridges to be uh, top 60 uh, because of that last month stretch where he was averaging 20 points on 50, 40, 90 shooting. And we all kind of poo-pooed it. And now Nico's been uh, taking a fun little victory lap. Yeah, I just want to say that I actually started top 50 with him. 
<laughs> and you guys took me down. <laughs> well, it's a well-deserved victory lap. I mean, I, I considered him as well, and I was, you know, I've seen that last month stretch thing go either way, you know, because sometimes you're just playing these meaningless games against, you know, terrible teams, and so it's like, all right, well, congratulations, you got your numbers, and it doesn't really translate. But for him, I mean, he's definitely taken a jump this year and, and should be on the list. Uh, you know, one other thing to keep in mind with, like, the Sabonis versus Bridges comparison I tended, when I was doing this list earlier in my career, I tended to favor guys who you know, I felt like were underrated by the masses. You know, I'm talking about Chris Middleton, uh, Paul Millsap's a great example, Derek Favors is another great example, where guys who are just absolute studs on these advanced stats because they're just really solid but not flashy. Um, they don't get the attention. They don't have the personalities. Maybe they're in smaller markets. And so I really tried to stick up for those guys. As I've done this list more and more, though, it, it kind of comes back to the Sabonis point. There is a real value in, in being able to be a number one guy, even if you're one of the worst number one guys in the NBA. And this goes for a player like Randall, too. Like, I would not take Randall very high in terms of a draft of like my number one guy to win playoff series, right? But he is a number one guy in a way that Bridges, Mikhail Bridges, will never be, right? And so if you're really saying, okay, value in a vacuum, which of those things is harder to replace? Our tendency is to say, well, look at Bridges. He's this ideal number three guy. He's the best number three guy maybe in the NBA, right? But if you're really saying, okay, like you're, you're drafting, do you want a below average number one guy or do you want the ideal number three guy? And I think in that situation, if you're taking Bridges with your first pick, your team's going to suck. <laughs> you know, that's the bottom line. Uh, if you take, uh, you know, if you take Randall with your first pick, you're going to be a little bit better. And so I had to learn that lesson along the way. Wait, wait, kind wait. Of, you're still going to suck if you take Randall with your first pick. <laughs> well, yeah, gonna... but look, but you can put together a winning team, I guess is my point, right? And, and I guess what I'm saying is you need to have, you need to be able to walk before you can run, right? And if you don't have mm -hmm. that foundational number one type guy, um, even if those guys are below average, you know, uh, not ideal players, and maybe they even have fit questions in terms of how you build around them, you still have to show those guys, you know, a little bit of love. Um, and I was going the other way. You know, I was I was on the Bridges camp for years doing this where it's like, oh, come on, you know, but you have to ask yourself, could he scale up his role? Like if you said, hey, we need you to be a point forward, that's not going to go very well, right? Uh, we need you to score 20 a night. That's not going to go very well. Um, you know, and, and so I think those kinds of questions are really important. Again, when you're weighing, I mean, this is really like from like the 30 to 60 spot in the list, right? Um, where we're talking about not great number ones, the number twos, and then the best number threes. Uh, you know, that that's a really tricky spot to be in. And I've had to sort of give a little bit more love to guys like Randall or Zach Levine, you know, number one guys who I don't particularly like. I don't necessarily view them as being, uh, you know, all NBA candidates like some people might. Um, and yet, you know, they do still have a, a real value and, and deserve to be considered properly. Are you saying that teams should just continuously tank until they get that real number one guy? Well, look, I mean, I think... Uh, it's harder now than it was, but you know, you go back 10 years and that was the major talking point, right? The Hinky mm -hmm. era, um, you know, certainly Oklahoma City's had their fair share of doing that. We've seen, you know, a lot of teams. I mean, Cleveland has been lottery pick after lottery pick after lottery pick. Minnesota had a long stretch of them. Orlando's kind of been in the tubes and they've just had the worst luck of anybody in terms of when they where they land. I mean, it, the last uh, 10 years or so, I think for a lot of teams, you know, it's just kind of an unfortunate reality of the NBA. And, you know, I see that being here in Los Angeles, you know, the Lakers it's ridiculous. You know, Drake sits courtside regularly, right? I mean, it's such a show. The Showtime thing is a real deal. 
they're able to pick up these veteran minimum guys for nothing that are actually like capable players who would never go play for 20 different franchises, right? And your only way in a lot of these markets is through the draft, right? Especially for a team like Oklahoma City, but also Orlando and, and a few others. And so I give a lot of respect to the GMs who are just honest. They can look in the mirror like Sam Presti looks in the mirror and says, look, we don't have it. Like, we're, you know, we just don't have the ability to really trade for top end talent and keep them because they're going to want to move on like Chris Paul. They're going to want to buy out like Kemba Walker and Al Horford. We've got to build a culture that's built around youth and make sure that we can develop those guys better than anybody else. And I mean, Josh, he's been awesome this year. I mean, what a pick uh, in, in terms of where they got him. Uh, it's not always 100% with Sam Presti, but I think that he's doing a better job with his hand tied behind his back than a lot of other GMs who are in similar spots who maybe try to, you know, shortcut the rebuild or overpay for free agents, you know, by paying some huge, uh, you know, price to bring guys in. I, I like the natural building approach, and I, I do hope it works out for those teams because they don't really have another option. You know, it, it, they're t- they're stuck in a lot of these markets. I I appreciate you bringing up Drake in there, your celebrity Instagramming. I was going to say, we we, we all Instagram story, Ben. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, look, the opening night was crazy. You had Adele sitting there with Rich Paul, you know, and it's like, okay, go around the league. How many uh, markets do you think Adele would actually go to an NBA game in, right? And I'm just trying to lay this out as like a haves and a have-nots type thing because I think, you know, coming from Portland, you know, we always heard, oh, it's just tough to compete for free agents. And I think for years and years, I was like, that's just an excuse. This GM just sucks. He's a bum. You know, it's like, well, it's not a level playing field whatsoever. There's a reason why Mark Cuban was out in the club at like 12.01 a.m. with Chandler Parsons trying to recruit him. Remember that? And there was a video of those guys drinking at the bar and everything like he had to pull out every stop. I mean, they locked DeAndre Jordan in a house at one point, you know, the, the Clippers did trying to keep him. So it's it's not you know, a level playing field when it comes to free agency, when it comes to talent acquisition. And I think that the the power player type guys are getting more and more aggressive in terms of how they steer players. I mean, look at the Anthony Davis situation. We're already hearing the Zion Williamson talk, uh, yeah. you know, Luka Doncic coaching change. I mean, yeah. they changed coaches because of Luka. I think Atlanta changed coaches because of Trey Young. I mean, you know, last year. So, you know, these kinds of situations uh, directly impact how organizations are able to kind of build and construct and, and have success. And, you know, it's it's one of those things where, you know, look who the title contenders are this year. I mean, it's, you know, New York, L.A. And then it's uh, the, the great counterexample, the ones that I have loved more than almost anything. And I hype them up. It's Giannis in Milwaukee and it's Jokic in Denver because those guys have stayed loyal. They re-signed the contracts. They've uh, made their teammates better in a way that's actually gotten kind of squeezed the most lemonade possible out of some lemon teammates there over these last couple of years. And they've just kind of consistently won to be able to get their franchise in a position where they can go and, and, and compete for some free agents and, you know, get guys who actually want to go there. I mean, I think the Drew Holiday trade was great for the NBA, right? Because he didn't force his way to, you know, the New York Knicks, right? Or to the Chicago Bulls or some other huge market franchise. He said, I want to go play with Giannis. This organization is going to give me an extension and I'm going to be part of a winning culture. And I don't care if it's 10 degrees for four months out of the year, you know, and I don't care if there's nothing to do in Milwaukee. I'm good with it. And I think that was huge. I mean, it it ensured the Bucs won the title last year. Without Drew, they do not win that championship. And it was so counter to like so many of the things that we've seen in the recent NBA in terms of how the the power broken goes down. I thought it was just a, a really good moment for the league as a whole. You're not giving much hope for those uh, the small market GMs. 
I, uh, in our, in doing our research, we did find one interesting quote here, and I'm going to read it to you from your article of why Jilted Sonics fans should uh, become Blazers fans <laughs> here. Okay. Uh, General manager Kevin Pritchard has built a team full of quality players, and he has done so with plenty of splashy trades, draft picks, and creative accounting. He even spawned a verb, Pritch slapped. As in, we totally pritch slapped the Sonics with that Odin pick, didn't we? Yeah. Um, well, I was the draft Kevin Durant guy, so you know we were, d- don't don't get it twisted. I, I was on the right side of history on uh, on that particular debate. The, the pritch slap thing was real, though. People in Portland loved Kevin Pritchard. He was a young uh, San Antonio Spurs kind of like uh, you know dis- uh, descendant of their front office. And, you know, his trades, interestingly enough, were not like big free agency moves. It was all draft trades, right? It was like maneuvering mm-hmm. to get to LaMarcus Aldridge and, and those kinds of things. And, you know, he loved a wheel and deal on draft night. And I, I, I wish more teams still did that. I feel like we haven't gotten the major draft movement these last few years. Maybe it's because people viewed some of these classes as uh, not being that great a couple years ago. Maybe that was the, the feeling. But I love a good draft night trade, you know, when everything just like kind of, you know, bomb gets dropped. You know, the Jimmy Butler deal on draft night was was freaking awesome and so that was kind of the kevin pritchard special but um portland tried to recruit those sonics fans and got no traction whatsoever i mean the idea was like hey the owners from seattle paul allen the coach is a seattle guy nate mcmillan they had brandon roy the face of the franchise was like seattle's favorite son player and yet they just couldn't you know put the the decades of rivalries uh you know past them but I think it was Portland Monthly. Is that where you found that article? Um, Portland Monthly Magazine. Yeah, they they were trying. They wanted to hop in and, and just kind of troll the, the Sonics a little bit and troll the uh, the Seattle fans a little bit. But that was tough, man. When the when the Sonics left to to go to Oklahoma City, I mean, the grieving process honestly hasn't finished. You know, people are still really really hurt and upset up there. And it would be cool if they got a franchise again. I don't know if it's expansion or relocation. I'm not really big on the expansion idea. Uh, I think. There's enough talent for 30 teams, you know, pretty much. You know, there's always probably like 26 that matter in any given year. So you throw another two teams on top of that, you maybe you're starting to spread it thin and, and really favor some of these big market teams even more uh, yeah. because it just, you know, the, the talents spread more thin. But if it was relocation and, and Seattle got in the mix or Vegas got in the mix, you know, I think that'd be awesome. I don't know. As a Lakers fan, if we could do some expansion and not protect Russell Westbrook, so it's kind of that uh, yeah. easy, <laughs> easy star piece for someone else to come. All right. Yeah. You know, it's going to be a high salary, but we'll put fans in seats. I'm all for it. Let's let's expand and get rid of Westbrook that way. You're you're speaking my language. I'm one of the biggest <laughs> advocates of the amnesty clause. And I don't know if you guys remember yeah. the amnesty clause where they, yeah. you used to be able to just Makes wipe sense. a bad contract af, uh, off your books. That was just great for the media because we all got to speculate who's going to get fired, you know, just let go and, and wipe their money off. What's the team that's going to have the biggest mistake with the amnesty clause, like in terms of total money? I think, didn't Andre Blatch get amnestied uh, before his new contract even kicked in? I mean, that was just an all-time move by an ownership group uh, there in Washington. It just added so many layers and wrinkles. And then when you're doing the rebuilding, uh, you know, discussions in terms of like, okay, well, like, you know, these guys are stuck. You know, Cleveland's been stuck with Kevin Love's salary for years. As you're saying, Russell Westbrook, he's been passed around from team to team to team. I'm sure he would have gotten amnesty at some point. John Wall is a good, uh, John Wall would be a good uh, candidate, right? Yeah, they amnestied him. Just they're still paying his money and just told him to stay home. I mean, it's basically a, a functional amnesty, right? So, but what I loved about it was that it gave you the caps, right? Because then you actually can have flexibility and retool a little 
bit, you don't get stuck. But then they got rid of that because the contract length got shorter, you know, so it wasn't as common of a problem. But I say bring it back. The owners don't like it, though, because it does mean that they feel pressure to spend a lot of money, um, you know, and, and keep up with the Joneses. And, and some of them would just prefer to keep that money as profits. But I love a good amnesty clause. And, you know, I, now I want to do like a, an article, like top 10 amnesty clause candidates. <laughs> I think John Wallace, number one, yeah. he's got the worst contract in the league. Yeah. I've made that same argument on this podcast that we should bring it back with the yes. idea that it's like, especially these rebuilding teams that, you know, get stuck with like, you know, a Kevin Love and it's just holding them back. You know, you could go out and, you know, play restricted free agency or something like that. My my biggest opponent on that has been Nate Schwartz, who... um wants bad gms to live with their mistakes <laughs> hey i'm just i'm just saying here you sign the guy figure it out come up with a creative way to trade for him and uh, people keep doing it i mean tommy shepherd somehow has pieced together uh, an insane package for westbrook i i don't know i've, I've been watching wizards games with like uh, a bit of sadness in my heart you know it's like oh kuzma did something good oh kcp just threw the ball out of bounds I remember when he did that and ruined our chances for things. Yeah, there was there was a play the other night where I think KCP overthrew Kuzma in transition in overtime by like 10 feet. And the mm-hmm. announcing crew for DC was like, well, it's a bunch of new guys together on this team. And they're still building their <laughs> chemistry. It's like, no, these guys have been missing passes together with the Lakers for three years. Don't worry about it. Just get used to it. Um, no, I, I'm with you. The... I mean, look, uh, part of me does say you need to be responsible for your mistakes. You don't want to give too many get out of the jail free cards. But like go back to Oklahoma City. I mean, how much money did they have to eat on some of these, you know, like Kemba, right? I mean, that's a lot of money to be eating and getting nothing out of them. And then now you're sort of acting as this like functional go between and you're cashing a few, um, you know, half picks here and there. But, you know, then they have to have his money on their books so i don't know if they would bring back at least one maybe not one a year but like it's on their books and so you could pay a guy to go home anytime you want but the the amnesty part of it of being able to like say hey i want john well off and now i'm houston and i've got 40 million in cap space this past summer to go out and find like whoever you know you go shopping like you could have gotten somebody pretty good with all that money and instead it's like all right we're paying uh you know daniel tice 36 million for four years or whatever it was it's like okay cool good luck with that plan you know but if they had had whatever you know the, the full 40 million to spend they could have gotten would you amnesty Christoph porzingis or do you still have any hope oh that- yes 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 i mean that's a great example it's tough. I want to give him all the, the chances, you know, but I just don't think the fit's very good. And so I guess maybe I would in Amnesty him. I would just pursue trades and just take whatever I could get. But I think, unfortunately, his his trade value is so low right now. I, I think people realize what a tricky fit he is. Uh, you know, it's just the defensive versatility stuff that, that comes back to bite him and the need for the ball and the the, the idea that, you know, he, he feels he needs to kind of be force fed. I don't know if you guys saw Jeff Van Gundy say recently about Dwight Howard, how his career kind of went sideways because he started demanding post touches and he, he didn't just stick with the pick and roll aspect of mm-hmm. his early game in Orlando that was working so well for him. And if he had just remained a pick and roll big finisher who was just an elite shot blocker, elite rebounder, he would have been liked by more people and he would have gotten along. He wouldn't have to bounce around as much and everything else. 
I mean, I think there's a lot of truth to that. In Dwight's case, I also think his athleticism declined pretty sharply, uh, you know, as he got into his late 20s, and and that took a toll in terms of his overall impact. And the same thing is happening for Porzingis, by the way. I mean, he just does not move nearly as well as he did early in his career because of injuries. But I do think, like, he still views himself as a superstar guy because in his home country, he's the man, right? He is number one. And, you know, to come over here and be told, no, you're just a spot-up shooter, stay out of the way – it's really hard for people to kind of get that through their heads. Usually that's a multi-year process. And in your Dallas, you don't have time to let Porzingis figure that out. Like Luca's ready to go right now. You just need talent around Luca. And so, yeah, that one would be a, a nice one. Or if you could amnesty him and, and play with that money in free agency, you probably could have gotten somebody pretty good. I mean, to be fair, I don't think Dallas is using Porzingis very well at the moment. seems like it's just uh, like Luca and Kristaps taking turns. Well, what would you do? Is there a solution? Like, how do you use them? I've asked myself this question, too. I mean, what's the best way to use them? Yeah, I mean, Rick Carlisle couldn't figure it out, so I don't think I can work out a solution right now. But, but you know, to his defense, I don't think it's working very well. And, um, I mean, is that really Kristaps' problem uh, to solve? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do the... Cl- I'll do the classic NBA fan thing and not actually give you a solution, but tell you what the opposite of the solution would be. And that's, I don't think it's the right idea to play Kristaps with another center, make him take mid-range jumpers and give him post-ups to play Luka off ball. That seems like the opposite of what you want to do. 100%. Well, here's the thing. I mean, everything should be going through Luka. That's how Luka plays. That's how Luka wins. The ball needs to be in his hands constantly, right? And if if Porzingis is not, like, mobile enough to be this pick-and-roll dive, like, dunk-finishing type of guy, and he's not content with being a pick-and-pop, you just get to shoot five threes a game, and otherwise you're just a, a spacing big, uh, then there's no real role for him. This is Luka's team. It's obvious. Luka's elite. He's incredible. And so that's why it kind of goes back to like, all right, well, sometimes you make a, a risky trade, you think it's going to pay off, it doesn't, and then you got to kind of dig your way out of it. And I do think there's some burden on Luca here too. He's got to show that he can make his teammates better. You know, I mean, they've cycled some players around him. He doesn't have the world's best talent. Um, but, you know, the, these three and D shooters who kind of keep rotating in, I mean, some of those guys are going to need to stick and really have you know, strong careers and, and tenures with uh, with Luca. And it was good to see Tim Hardaway Jr. Um, get paid and, and have a nice postseason run as well. There was a, a more clean balance, I think, between those two guys. Um, but I do think that, like, I'm stumped. I don't know how to use Porzingis effectively. If, if he was on my team, he would be a spot-up shooter. And, you know, he would just be three feet behind the three-point line, like the tallest version of Aaron Gordon from uh, or Eric Gordon, sorry, from Houston a few years ago. That's how I would play him. And then I would just close my eyes on defense. But you know, I think you do have to play him with the center sometimes because he I can't think- guard any. He can't guard anybody, and he's he's not yeah. a great high volume rebounder. I don't really trust him as that backline guy. So I think they're better with Maxi, honestly, and that says it all. Right. I think the thing I'd do first if I was trying to coach Dallas is try to find a way to reclaim some of that defensive value. I watched the Bulls. Jazz game recently, and I was truly shocked at Nikola Vucevic actually being a plus defender out there. Uh, he was not coming up on the picks. He was hanging way back and just defending the rim. They were running guards over top to try to chase people off the line and kind of try to force them into that mid-range, which looked fairly sustainable. And then uh, Vucevic just hands straight up. It feels like Dallas could do something like that with Kristaps and, and maybe reclaim a little bit of value there. And then if he's just a spot-up shooter, but a half decent rim protector, then he's he's not horrid. 
Yeah, it sucks because he was a really good de- – I mean, he was a pretty interesting defense player when he first came in. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, because the length and there was some agility where, like, you know, even if he if someone beat him turning the corner, he could recover and block the shot at the rim, uh, you know, by with, with jumping. And you just don't see him move like that anymore. I mean, he's much more careful with his body. He's just not super assertive on that end, uh, not very physical, like I said, when it comes to rebounding. I just don't think he likes to play defense. That's what it looks like to me. Um, and, you know, he, he, I, I, again, it goes back to what's his – it's kind of an identity crisis. Who does he think he is? In his mind, he's averaging 25, and he's the number one – he's mellow in his mind, you know? Yeah. And that's not what anybody needs, and certainly not what a team with Luka needs. Well, from one kind of Southwest team with a superstar and a lot of questions to another, you and I messaged a little bit about John ja Morant and Memphis – What's it going to take for them to really make the next leap? Are they above the play-in at this point? Where where are they going? I love Memphis. Um, you know, it's been a little bit spotty. They got absolutely worked by Miami over the weekend. But I think that says more about Miami and how they're coming together and how well Jimmy's playing than it does about Memphis. Uh, Jaw's just been on, unreal uh, so far to start the season. I think he might be – I was weighing this in terms of, like, my favorite players to actually watch – I think it's like Katie, Giannis, and Ja now might be one, two, three. Because Ja's just in that nice sweet spot where he's got his feet wet. He's he's an established NBA player. He's probably going to be an all-star this year, but he still has a lot to prove. And he goes out and plays every single night like he needs to prove it. And I just think his feel in, in the half court is totally underrated. He's really good at making his teammates better. He fits with basically anybody. He's been getting stuff out of a Kiwi, uh, Steven Adams, already this season. They've had some nice uh, you know, two-man moments. And then he does find his shooters very unselfishly and, you know, helps those guys, you know, find, um, you know, opportunities for success. You know, he found Jaron for kind of a dagger three in L.A. last weekend. I was I was at that game. So I, I'm just all about him. Now, obviously, the defense needs work. His strength needs work. He needs to um, you know, show that he can hold up for an entire season playing this kind of like reckless or very athletic way that he plays. But I think in terms of young point guards, I'd rather have him than just basically anybody, you know, in, in terms of like the next six, seven, eight years. And, and a lot of it is character and leadership. Those guys just swear by him. His coaches swear by him. Uh, he's been completely dedicated to improving his weaknesses. He's a basketball junkie and his team, he's got that personality that everybody gravitates to. He's a magnet in that locker room. I think with a lot of young point guards, ball dominant guys, you know, people are with you when things are going well, but when things don't go well, they blame you a little bit. It's kind of like the Harden effect. And I don't see people turning on job. You know, I just don't think he's that polarizing of a player. He's, he's a little bit more of a Chris Paul in terms of how he runs a locker room and keeps people together. And I know Chris kind of, you know, he's, he's wound a little bit too tight. So that's not a perfect example, but you know, I do think he's an organizer and, uh, and somebody who wants the team to win rather than wants to get his own numbers or wants, you know, fame for fame's sake or anything like that. He was just out saying that, oh, it took me scoring 25 points per game to get noticed uh, in the press. I just love his attitude. Like he prioritizes winning over his own uh, stats and accomplishments. That just seems like a re- like the opposite of Luca. <laughs> <laughs> like he's he's really showing leadership. He's he's yeah. He just want to win. Anyone who makes his teammates better, um, like that's something I really want to see out of Luca. You know, sacrifice a little bit of his his own game to to like make his team better. Love Jamarant. Well, here's the thing. I I love Jamarant's personality, but I identify with Luca's personality. I, I'm a Luca in my daily life, right? I mean, perfectionist, want to do everything my way. Yeah. You know, just gets frustrated if anybody else isn't picking up their slack. You know, you can just imagine yourself in a group project in college, right? I mean, I. I 
lot of Luca tendencies in my group projects. I'll say that. That's why, you know, when, when point guards like John Moran come around and they're just, there's a healthier balance, you know, they're understanding the overall group dynamic, not just their own perspective. And they can kind of keep, you know, everybody else's, um, you know, needs in mind. It really matters. You know, it's a Magic Johnson effect. Uh, you know, you, you go right down the list, you know, a lot of successful guards have had a more holistic approach than just sort of uh, you know, their own, you know, individual kind of killer mentality. But that doesn't mean Luca's way can't work. I mean, the guy is so skilled. He's so talented. And, you know, he does stuff that no one else in the league can do already. And he's putting up numbers that have never been seen before. So for him, it's going to be about, you know, uh, sanding off the rough edges, you know, and Jordan went through the same process, right? Where like he was very Luca in his first couple of years. And it was like, all right, Phil Jackson kind of had to teach him to be a little bit less self-centered, a little bit more team oriented to kind of pull the best out of them. And um, unfortunately, I don't think Jason Kidd's the next Phil Jackson. At some point, someone's going to come along and hopefully kind of pull those tendencies out of Luca and steer him towards that direction. Recent episode of The GOAT, you said that John Morant will take over being the best point guard in the league as soon as Steph Curry is done. What what kind of timeline are you putting on this? And what about with Trey Young? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a good debate because, you know, Dame Lillard fans would say, well, you know, he's he's further along in the process. He's been all NBA. You know, he's in three years. He's still going to be, you know, a very elite player. I mean, maybe. I think that, first of all, Steph underrated still somehow in terms of where he stands, you know, in these ranking type lists. I mean, still just an incredible MVP level player, had an awesome start to the season. Beat out John Morant for player of the week, which I didn't think anyone was going to do, but he did for the, the first week of the season. So I think that Steph's probably got another three years, you know, where he's sort of, you know, at least given the credit as the best point guard in the NBA. Because again, you have to steal that, right? Like you have to take that away from a guy. He's got to fall off the map for a couple of years and someone else, you know, Jaw's going to have to make a Western Conference Finals to kind of make those types of things come true. But I think the debate's going to be like Jaw, Trey Young, LaMelo Ball. Yeah, I think that's going to be the debate. And, you know, you've got some other guys, like I mentioned, Lillard could still kind of be hanging out in the mix. It just comes down to what your flavor of point guard is. And I I trust Ja to keep turning himself into at least a passable shooter. And I think he's got the best half-court feel of all those guys. I talked about his leadership, uh, you know, uh, and dedication stuff earlier. He's just a horse I'm riding. I don't know. I'm open to counter arguments. Obviously, it's not settled. You know, we've got three or four years to watch this play out. It's going to be a really fun one to track, though. But this this mantle doesn't pass very often, right? I mean, Chris Paul had it for a while. Steph has had it for a while. You know, I mean, he's he's really had it. I would say since 2015. That's six years. That's I mean, that's a reign. Um, and obviously, he had some help with you know the the team being so good and everything else. But uh, I think he's still going to be going here for a little bit more. Uh, you know, and, and Ja, look, if he takes it at 25, I mean, that could be his for five, six, seven years too. So, or, or Trey, I mean, either way, I mean, it's very possible either one of those guys would be in that mix. So it's one that I've got on my long-term vision, but uh, do you have a favorite? I stand on the Trey side. When we did our top 100, uh, we all did it separately first. And then we met up with, all right, here's everyone's list, throw them in a spreadsheet and kind of see what the differences are. And we all thought that everyone else would be lower on Trey and we were going to be higher. So uh, Trey, oh gosh, what did he end up? 15th on our list? Yeah. Uh, Which you had him at 20th, so not too far apart. But there's some pretty sizable guys in there that that make the difference. I I love his, trying to figure out how to phrase this, but I was looking at his playoff numbers and what he was averaging like 28, 29. And then he was averaging 25 points created off of assists. So... Trey is single-handedly contributing to half of a team's total offensive output 
which is just just phenomenal. And that's not even counting secondary assists or causing the action that then results in a play or being the gravity pulling defenders away. And that's something, you know, Steph Curry has done so well for years where he can be off in the corner or kind of running off of screens and the defense is reacting. And then meanwhile, Andrew Wiggins gets the easiest baskets of his life. I, I lean, I Trey Young, but I like the fact that you're bringing up Ja and putting his name in the conversation. And I'm really just hoping that a pair of my Michigan State guys, you know, Jaron Jackson Jr. and uh, Tillman can really come through because you're only ever going to go so far as your teammates. And I'm a little bit more worried about Ja's teammates helping him get there than I am about Trey's. Paul George um, said, reminded him of um, Derrick Rose. But I kind of see John Morant as having a bigger potential than than Derrick Rose, even if he didn't get injured. I really like John Morant. I kind of lean on him. But to be honest, I also really like Shea Gilgis Alexander. Like, that's a guy I really love watching. Um, how far is he from from being one of those guys who can, like, take the reins and, and be the best player in the league in terms of the point guard position? For Shea, yeah, I mean, I think that Shea is probably like in the next tier for me. I mean, he is he is really a skilled player, and in just the same questions that you're having, like, is you know Memphis's supporting cast going to be good enough for Ja to get his full credit? I mean, it's it's even more pronounced there in Oklahoma City. Or how long does he wind up staying there before he needs to go somewhere else where he can really like you know have the the full recognition? I mean, I think that he's kind of been that fringe All Star candidate these last couple of years. I was fine with him being left off. You know, this year, and I don't. I don't think he's going to make it. Or sorry, last year, I don't think he's going to make it this year. But a very skilled player. I just think there's more layers to Jaw's game. Now, I had Trey over Jaw this year because you know, as I said, you know, you want to reward you know team success and and mm-hmm. accomplishments and like making the first round of the playoffs last year with Jaw and you know knocking out Steph Curry in the play and was import uh, was impressive. But I mean, Trey had an all time postseason run that absolutely I did not see coming whatsoever. And, you know, there were some extenuating circumstances, Philly and full implosion, New York being overrated and that kind of stuff. But still, I mean, he and then he gets injured against Milwaukee, which was unfortunate. I mean, they could have won that series if he didn't get injured. You know, if Giannis gets injured and Trey doesn't, uh, maybe the Hawks are in the finals. That's pretty crazy for a point guard as young as him. I guess my question with him is how much more untapped potential is there with Trey? And then can he steady out his shot? Because he takes a lot of deep, crazy three-pointers, and he's going to have to hit those at a higher percentage. I mean, there's a gap between teams respect Trey's shooting ability for sure, and he draws and has incredible gravity, uh, but he doesn't connect the same way that Steph Curry does. And I think if he ever wants to get to the point where he's winning titles like a Steph Curry, with that being kind of the foundation of his offensive game, he's going to have to become a better shooter, even if that just means being slightly more disciplined with his shot selection so that, uh, you know, he, he's connecting at a higher rate. Because I think that wears on teammates eventually. You know what I mean? And the other thing with Trey, he knew every trick in the book last year. So are all those tricks just gone now? You know, and he's yeah. been one of the loudest people kind of crying about not getting enough whistles. Does mm-hmm. that revert? You know, are there going to be more whistles? And so he's going to be okay? Or is he going to have to, you know, adjust his game and just not have like four or five points per game that he was getting from free throws? Because Outside of Harden, he might have been the best trickster in the league. You know, he didn't catch as, as much crap for it, uh, but certainly he was like very, very skilled at uh, manipulating uh, calls in his favor. His uh, free throw attempts is pretty much exactly half this season, and you can see that in, in his point totals as well. So he's definitely one of the guy, one of those guys who's going to be impacted most, I think, with with the rule changes. I really love those rule changes. I think it it's it's making the game more like to me. It's it's more fun to watch because there's a, there's less breaks in the game. 
Um, I think we're going to see more fluent offense. And I think the defense uh, side of the game is going to be more intense. People are not going to be too afraid to uh, you know, reach in and stuff. I love these rule changes. Do you worry at all about getting back to the Velade Divact of it all? Because that's, that, in my fandom as a Lakers fan, that's where a lot of this flopping starts is Divac getting hit by Shaq and going 10 feet into the stands. And so you start calling things tighter and the defense starts learning in uh, these little tricks to flop and then get offensive calls. And you're starting to see push-offs getting called and offensive fouls getting called more. Are you worried at all about this kind of transitioning to being uh, too defense heavy? No, because the NBA, it's been a comedy these last couple of years. Teams scoring 120, 130, 140, 150. I mean... Is there going to be a recalibration for sure? But the recalibration has been needed. You know, I mean, the the stats have been so inflated. It's like the juice ball era these last five years. And you've seen the scores so far this season so much more reasonable. I mean, I remember when 50 points was a really big deal. And for the last three or four or five years, a 50 point game has not even barely been worth a tweet because it happens so often. This year, if somebody scores 50, it will be a big deal as long as they keep enforcing the rules the way they've been enforcing it. And I think that's right because... You know, there was, you know, people always like to laugh, but you know, there's former players are like, you know, if Michael Jordan played in this era, he would average 40 points a game. He would average 45 points a game. It's like, well, the way they were calling these games for the last, you know, five years, Jordan would average 42 points a game. Like that would have been a thing because he was just a more skilled offensive player than pretty much anyone in this generation. And they're calling it in a completely different manner than they did even in the 2010s, let alone the 1990s. So I think fewer free throws is good for the sport. As you mentioned, the games go faster, fewer interruptions, uh, fewer debates about, hey, let's go to this replay and, you know, watch it in nine different angles. I mean, just just yeah. hoop and play ball. And But you are seeing defenders adjust. I've been seeing guys riding offensive more players when they go to the basket much more than they did in past years because they're just – I think in past years they just assumed if there's any contact, there's going to be a whistle. And I think, you know, if you ride a guy going to the basket, that's basketball. You know, that's just kind of how it goes. As long as you're not shoving him off course, if there's a little bit of contact there, you know, you're okay. And I think that kind of, uh, you know, back and forth two-way dynamic is the nature of the sport. And, and I think that the NBA – I expect the NBA feels uh, that way. I, I know that they're meeting this week to discuss, the owners are, to discuss sort of how things are going to this point. And hopefully I'll have a story about the rule changes at some point here in the next week or so. Just, to, you know, do the owners feel as good about these changes as a lot of uh, media members and fans do? But I expect they do uh, because players have, have been out front, most of them, besides Harden and, and uh, Trey Young, have been saying this is great for the sport. You know, it's so much more watchable, and I completely agree. I would imagine the biggest worries would be uh, more injuries. I think that could concern the, the owners, I guess. Yeah, I don't know if there – it could just be, look, scoring sells, you know. The home run ball yeah. in baseball is, is what sells. And so, you know, it's it's gone too far, sort of, uh, you know, what Nate was alluding to of like, hey – we don't want games down in the 80s and 70s because that's bad for business. And look, there was a 10-year stretch of the NBA where the games were regularly in the 70s and 80s. And guess what? It was ugly and not that fun. And people don't remember it fondly. You know, So there, there's definitely a balance. But to me, the sweet spot is you know 95 to 110, right? If the scores are in that range, you probably have a pretty good, solid, competitive basketball game. The other issue that they had recently that I should have mentioned earlier when you have those inflated scoring totals and you have uh, the inflated individual scoring numbers, right, where, oh, everybody's getting a 50-point eye, you know, everybody's scoring 120, 
you have a lot of blowouts. Blowouts are really bad for business and they're mm -hmm. bad for television business, right? People tune out. As soon as it's 20 points, whatever, screw it, right? And so I think competitive games, that's really what you want to go for. And I think so far, I've been watching a lot of competitive basketball here in these first couple of weeks where you know, even if, you know, team like uh, Golden State got up big on Memphis, Memphis came back, the game wasn't over. Uh, and there's been some, you know, games that have just been kind of tight, you know, double overtime last night, Boston, Washington. So I haven't looked at the numbers in terms of like, is margin of victory down this year compared to last year? Uh, but I, I would just assume it is because we haven't seen the huge scoring numbers, the, the giant, like gigantic blowouts and, and kind of the, uh, you know, the, the, the worthless games. It was funny last night. Somebody actually asked uh, Eric Gordon out of the Rockets. They're like, you know, you guys have been pretty competitive this year. Like, you know, you, you haven't gotten blown out by 20 or 30 points. Like, you know, you're keeping it to 10 or 15. And Eric Gordon's looking around. He's like, 10 or 15? That's still a lot of points to be losing by. Like, we're not yeah. excited <laughs> to be losing by 10 or 15 yeah. points. Yeah. But look, I mean, the game, the Rockets-Lakers game is a good example. That game was like much more watchable because it was a 10-point game at the end than it was if it had been a 30-point blowout, right? I mean, Melo still had to hit a bunch of shots on the stretch. LeBron had to come back in the fourth quarter to kind of close it out. You know, there was at least a reason to pay attention to it rather than saying, oh, man, they're down 45 because Jalen Green's just terrible. Like, who cares? Let's turn this game off, right? Well, and to, to speak to that, I was putting together our power rankings for our website and I was like, oh, man, the Clippers are one in six. That doesn't that doesn't seem at all right. And they were negative two point two, negative two point three, uh, you know, points per 100 possession or that's the, their point differential has been. And it's it's just such a slim margin. And the Indiana Pacers were, were another one that were like that with their their point differential was actually better than Brooklyn, despite the fact that Indiana was one and six and Brooklyn is three and three or whatever they were when I was working on this on Sunday. So I definitely can see that. All right. Well, do you mind if I ask you a couple of bubble ball questions? Bring it on. I love talking bubble ball. So I listened to a ton of your interviews because I was like, I don't want to repeat the questions. And I know I heard you and Sharp get into it. And you're like, with the question of what's one thing you wish you could fit in the book? Uh, so I'm going to do the inverse of that because you asked this to Kevin Pelton about his 2010 prospectus. Uh, what's one thing you wish you didn't write in the book? What's one thing you would take out? Oh, man. Is there anything in the book that I regret? That's a great question. And I'll give you credit. No one has asked that. I'm not sure if your co-hosts know that. The, my least favorite question of the book interviews was, what's the thing that you didn't put in the book? And I was like, well, look, man, I spent six months on this book. Obviously, yeah. I put everything that I want in the book. Yeah. Why would I leave anything out? That's yeah. uh, that's tough. Um, let me see here in terms of uh, if, if there was anything that I could take out. Uh, yeah, you might have stumped me on that, honestly. I think, um, you know, there was there was some real heavy Celtics optimism coming out of their second round series loss uh, by me. Probably an overcorrection from years of just needlessly hating on the Celtics because their fans uh, are so passionate. And I was, you know, basically like laying it out. Hey, if Danny just does this, this and this, these guys are going to the finals in 2021. Right. And obviously, three months later in March, I was writing, this is the most disappointing team in the NBA. I hate watching them. They do not play together. Their stars don't make each other better. They're just a mess. And sure enough, coach is gone front office is gone and it's a kind of a whole new era and you they come back this season with a lot of the same problems point guards gone um in Kemba as well so I think I might have been a little too optimistic about the Celtics based on how they played 
you know, against the Miami Heat, like kind of the the rap section of that. Uh, maybe I would have toned that down just slightly because I don't really like Jason Tatum that much. Honestly, he's fine, but I, he's not really my type of player. He's just he's in his own zone. He's got great technique, but doesn't necessarily make his teammates better. And I do like Jalen Brown in terms of how he makes himself uh, improves every single year. But there's still kind of a ceiling on, I think, where his game is going. And they don't have an organizer. You know, Marcus Smart as point guard makes no sense. And so I think I probably should have just trusted, like, you know, Kemba didn't do a ton in that playoff series. I should have focused on that a little bit more. And then I should have asked, you know, is Tice really a long-term solution inside? Because I was so impressed with Tice's play in the bubble. Gave them a lot of really, really good minutes. Obviously, you know, was on the wrong end of some amazing Bam Adebayo plays at the end of that Eastern Conference Finals. But they needed a better option in that spot, too. And I think I was just uh, being a little bit too rosy-eyed on on those guys. That's probably my answer. All right. I like it. I I kept trying to find a good question in the book, but you did a really wonderful job writing it, and I kind of felt like I was reliving the moments. Uh, so much so that it was it was kind of hard to read at points because it was an oppressing time in American history. And yeah, uh, what what made you want to go with that route? Because you really you put things in your eyes. I've read, gosh. I'm going to say probably close to 100 uh, NBA biographies, story of the seasons, um, verbal histories. And I haven't read one that's kind of that much bringing the writer into it. So what were some of your kind of writing influences? Well, it was a really tricky question for me in terms of like, do I write this in first person or do I write this just as a journalist, uh, as a journalist would? You know, obviously I didn't ever write first person for The Washington Post at ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, or even at Sports Illustrated until I got to the bubble. And what we understood when we got to the bubble was there was just this crazy curiosity of like, what are the exact specifics of daily life like? And you can't really tell that as richly in the third person or just sort of this neutral uh, discussion as you can if you're just like, hey, guys, like hop on my back. We're going to go right along and I'm going to show you what the bubble is like. Right. And so I did some diary entries really early on, uh, pseudo diary. I and mean, there were stories, but it was kind of like first person stories from the bubble. And there was a fascination from people who weren't even basketball fans who were just like, what in the heck is happening at Disney World? Why are these people down there? This makes no sense whatsoever. I mean, I'm getting calls from all these different, you know, every country you could possibly imagine just saying, like, are you about to die? Like, what's this plan? Like, you know, what have you signed yourself up for? And so I think that, you know, the interest in that personal telling and then also just the interest around podcasts, too. I mean, I would tell stories on podcasts about what life was like in the bubble and everybody's like really interested to know. Right. So I think that's sort of what set me on the course of like, hey, you know, this is probably how you have to tell this story, at least in parts. But, you know, of course, there's so many layers to it with Black Lives Matter and uh, the social justice movement, the presidential election, all the that like it's not all first person it's i just try to kind of pick and choose my spots to kind of remind people like hey uh, you know you're kind of going along uh, for the ride with me but i wrote this book kind of with the idea that like hey in 10 or 15 years people are going to want to know why did this title get decided in disney world how did lebron win his fourth ring in orlando in this you know the middle of a pandemic how close was it to not happening? You know, who were the people who like made sure that it did happen? How much money was at stake? Uh, you know, all those kinds of questions. I think they're just going to get lost to history the further that we get away from it. So my idea was, yeah, it is depressing to read it back right now. I mean, doing the audio book, I was like, God, man, this is a real, real, this is tough in, in parts, just like you said, but it was a hard time. And I think people in 2030 and 2040 need to know how hard it was. And I think like the, the, 
final thought I had was like, look, the bubble was for the diehards, like the people who really care about basketball, the bubble, uh, including the players, by the way, guys like LeBron and Jimmy Butler, who just wanted to settle that thing on the court. And it was like last man standing. Um, you know, if it didn't have that level of passion for the sport, nobody would have cared. They would have just said, sorry, no bubble season canceled. We move on to next year. Right. And so I think, you know, for people who really love the sport, hopefully in 10 or 20 years, they're going to be able to look back on this book and be able to see it and say, wow, like, you know, that that same love I have for hoops, you know, there were, that's what drove this entire experiment. That's why they were able to kind of get this thing done. And as somebody who loves the game, I just kind of wanted to, you know, chronicle it in that way so that people would be able to relate to it. You know, I kept thinking if I was a kid, you know, with a, a library pass, you know, when I was eight years old. You know, and somebody had said there was a bubble in 1975. That would have been the first book I would have checked out of the library, right? It's like, oh, yeah. why did they do that? I got to go find out about that. So uh, that that was sort of my target uh, market was myself as a child. <laughs> Having been that kid, I can say that my first book that I checked out of a library was uh, The Punch about uh, Kermit Washington hitting oh, yeah. Rudy Tobjanovich. Well, he, so, he used to do an uh, afternoon radio show in Portland, uh, Kermit Washington and Michael Thompson. They were legends in the Portland market. Yeah, yeah. I think Kermit might have gotten into some financial difficulties. I, I, there was a scandal at some point, so I don't I don't know where he is now. But uh, he had a great voice for radio. I'll say that. Yeah, well, I mean, he was, he was a huge part of history, not just that punch, but him and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar together in some of those earlier years where they played together. They were a force, uh, a really powerful rebounding that could have been something. You kind of left the bubble and kind of left the book on a really happy note. And since then, you've kind of you've talked favorably of the bubble environment and the safety it provided during all of the spikes. Looking back, knowing what you know, would you do another bubble? And what is the like lowest grade sports that you would go in a bubble to cover? Well, I did another bubble this summer. I went to Tokyo and they, it was really strict in Tokyo. And I had some issues with my uh, my health passport clearance and all this stuff. So I was actually like basically afraid that if I left my hotel or the gym or the official media work area, they were basically going to expel me from the country. I was like living in fear. Uh, it's a complicated story. But anyway, it was even more challenging uh, that experience day to day in Tokyo because of the language barrier, because of access to food and that kind of stuff, then it actually was in the Disney World bubble. And I've I've gone back and forth like what was harder. I mean, a, a month in Tokyo might have been uh, might have been harder than three months in Disney World, honestly, just because of what we were actually allowed to do and and uh, and those kinds of things. But I would do another bubble as long as I knew how long it was going to last. I think that one of the tricky parts of when we signed up to go down there. There's no guarantee it was going to work. We didn't necessarily think it was going to work. Like it was like, ah, eh, 50-50, you know, if we get to the playoffs, mm-hmm. we'll see. I mean, I, I had some real thoughts of like, well, um, if there's a positive test in the bubble, I'm just going to be locking myself in my hotel room. I'm going to be eating this like giant tub of peanut butter I ordered off Amazon and that's going to have to sustain me for two weeks. I mean, my mind was going some crazy places, you know, it's like, how do I, uh, how do I escape this virus? So, um, but you know, it did work, but ultimately, and the players, it was too much. They, they're just used to a different standard of living. I think that their fear factor of the virus was significantly less than mine. You know, I've been pretty careful almost the entire way, you know, in terms of how I conduct myself day to day. And I think that a lot of NBA players just based on the number of positive tests we've had over the last two years are not quite as careful. And so, uh, or as concerned, maybe uh, from a health standpoint. So I would do it again. Uh, I would only go back to Disney World if it was a bubble. I will never go back to Disney World under any other circumstances. I got my fill after 93 days. 
Um, and in terms of the lowest uh, sport, I mean, I'm pretty much all basketball all the time. Uh, so it would need to be an assignment. But look, if they said, hey, overtime elite or something. Yeah. Look, if my bosses came and were like, hey, you know, the ping pong tournaments going on, whatever country, you know, we need you to go cover it, you know, for two weeks. I wouldn't say no. You know, I, I, uh, I'm, I'm mostly down for whatever, but uh, I, I prefer covering games at Staples Center uh, with the fans back in the building and kind of a nice, safe environment. They've, they've structured things very well for media members. So, um, you know, it's all vaccinated section for riders and, and uh, it's very low risk from that standpoint. So I prefer that to hopping back in a bubble. And, you know, last year was the hardest year, I thought, for the NBA because they got stuck in between. They didn't have the bubble. They had a lot of positive tests. They had a lot of postponed games. And I think this year with so many players being vaccinated and give credit to the players for getting vaccinated, um, I don't think we're going to see those kinds of disruptions. You know, I think Kevin Love entered the health and safety protocols this morning, they said. Very few players have tested positive uh, since mm-hmm. the season started. And I don't think we're going to see a single game postponed because of it. Knock on wood, of course. But uh, and I think they're going to have a normal all-star weekend as well, which is a really big deal for the NBA. So um, I think they've done a very good job overall. I think the toughest challenge was last season. And I think ultimately day-to-day of last season might have been more challenging than day-to-day in the bubble because at least you had a safe routine. At least you knew the protocols were working. And uh, at least they didn't have to cancel a single game. You know, the only games that didn't get played were the ones due to the uh, this the social justice protests, which is amazing. Uh, you know, and, and nobody would have guessed that before it started. So now as we're exiting out of kind of bubble life and bubble land, We've got some international hosts on here. We've got uh, Nico from Denmark. We got Dylan from New Zealand. You get one vacation. You go into the home of Lego in Denmark, or are you uh, <laughs> going to go see the natural beauty of of New Zealand? New Zealand's high on my list. I've actually been talking about doing a New Zealand trip, which is why I asked before the show whether you guys had opened back up. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like I'm going to come down next week, but I want to make sure we're like progressing that direction by like 2024 or something so I can get to, get a nice taste of it. It, it looks incredible, uh, you know, all the pictures I've seen. Now, Denmark, I got to say Norway might be a little higher. This could be a real hot take for you. I feel like Norway <laughs> might be a little higher than Denmark on my personal uh, travel bucket list. But only because I got a taste of the fjords in Iceland. And I think Norway is like Ford Central, right? Like basically they got like more fjords than anywhere. So I love that coastline, just driving all day long, seeing the different, uh, you know, uh, glaciers and all that kind of stuff. So that... That, that might uh, that might outweigh. I don't know how are Denmark's fjords and what else am I missing out there? Give give me a pitch. I mean, actually, I have been living right beside a fjord in uh, my entire life. Oh, I mean, the Danish nature is definitely not as spectacular as as like the Norwegian uh, coastline and stuff like that. So don't go to Denmark expecting uh, like a big sighting of of great nature. We have we have our woods and and I think our biggest mountain i'm not sure you can actually categorize it as a mountain because our land is still just like so flat <laughs> but uh, you definitely want to visit copenhagen i love the danish crime dramas on netflix i watch a lot of those man uh yeah. and I, I watched borgen recently that's that's right. a pretty good show man i don't know if you is that do they like that in denmark or is that like yeah a yeah, yeah for sure i mean we have we have great tradition uh producing a tv drama um and and borgen or Bone is actually one of the biggest Bourne? successes. Yeah, Bone. <laughs> yeah, completely butchered that one. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. I mean, Danish is a strange language. So, uh, but I mean, New Zealand is high on my bucket list as well. I, I'd rather go to New Zealand than 
you know, going to <laughs> cold, cold ass Denmark uh, where it's raining all day. <laughs> well, have you gotten sick of like the Game of Thrones tourists yet? Is that still a thing or not? In in New Zealand. Lord of the Rings, maybe you're thinking of? Oh, Lord of the Rings, is that it? Yeah. So wait, yeah. where did they film Game of Thrones? Croatia. I did the... Uh... <laughs> we know that because Nate's been... I did the Zach Lowe Croatia tour. Well, in some respects, maybe Lord of the Rings tourists are even worse than Game of Thrones tourists, now that I'm thinking about it. Quite possibly. Is that like a regular occurrence in life? Like you have to deal with all these people wandering around looking for film sites or no? Uh, we're pretty lucky because they sort of contained it. You know, they like developed Hobbiton, which is like literally a, a place that exists in New Zealand. So the tourists, they sort of get contained within <laughs> that area and they go check out everything there. So um it's not so bad in the in the cities. So do but do New Zealanders go to Hobbiton or no? Not really. It's like one of those things, you know, when it's in your own place. Like if it, if I was going, if they based it in like the US or El Denmark or whatever, and I was going there, like I would definitely go. But like I could, I could, you know, when we're not in lockdown, I could literally drive there, and I've just never been. Yeah. You know, you you don't do your own things, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. It's like if you live in New York City, you don't go see the Statue of Liberty five times, you know. Yeah. Yep. Frodo Baggins' house is the New Zealand equivalent of Statue of Liberty, I guess. <laughs> uh, I did my uh, I did my Croatia tour not for Game of Thrones. I'm just gonna put that out there. My cousin moved to Israel, which I know you've spent some time. I, I have a Jewish heritage, and so she claimed Aliyah moved there and bought me a um, Nikola uh, Vujicic jersey from the Maccabi Tel Aviv in 2003, and so in the 04 Olympics. Israel did not qualify, but uh, Vujicic, who was Croatian, did qualify. And so I ended up cheering for uh, Croatia in the 04 Olympics. And they've kind of been my, my second country. So Your adopted country. Well, is, Cro- is Croatia, should Croatia top both Denmark and New Zealand? Is that the case you're making here? I I would definitely make that case. I, I just spent a lot of time in the cities, but I slipped out to... Ah, this one just gorgeous waterfall where they kind of let you swim out in the water. And it is, I mean, it's easily a hundred feet of, of like three descending layers of waterfalls. I cannot pronounce it, but I, I would make a strong case to go to Croatia. I know you keep vegetarian dietary restrictions, but some of the fresh fish and just being right on the water, seeing uh, fishermen kind of come in with the nets uh, and then being like, hey, we just brought in mussels. So if you want mussels, they're fresh. And like, it's, it's literally dripping in water because they're just fresh from the or fresh from the Mediterranean. I, I cannot recommend it as a dining or a uh, nature experience any higher. That sounds awesome. Catch of the day. Definitely uh, got a little bit of that when I was, I spent some time in Belize when I was in college in Central America and a lot of catch of the day down there too. There's a lot of whitefish though, but yeah, good times. Although Dylan here is vegan, so I'm sure he could give you some pretty great vegetarian spots if you ever make it out to New Zealand. We, we, we've got, um, not so much in my city, but in Auckland, there are plenty of places we can get like really good, like fake meat, like you can get a cheeseburger or like fried chicken and stuff. That they've got, they've got a pretty decent vegan scene down in Auckland. Feels like they're expanding their like beyond meat. I'm seeing billboards for like full sausage links now. And they've got all sorts of different stuff. I, I mean, I don't, I don't really mess with that stuff, but maybe I should now that uh, now that I'm hearing this pitch. A friend's husband works for Beyond Meat as a. Um, he describes as he's kind of in their think tank of like marketing and advertising, and so they always will do you know the the Beyond Meat 
dinners at their place and it's not bad but I'll, I'll keep my meat i mean the nice thing about that is all you really have to do is go to the meat aisle and be like all right this is our think tank like all right we're just gonna do this <laughs> <laughs> not that hard <laughs> not, not reinventing the wheel chinks well ben i mean we've had you for an hour and a half i would love more than anything just to keep talking sports all day well, we should maybe let's get out on this one. Who who are your picks at at this point after watching the first two weeks to win the title? Has anything that's happened so far changed like your finals picks in any way, or are we still in let's feel everything out mode? Has anybody overreacted or reacted? I guess is my question. So I'm trying to remember who I had coming out of the West because it wasn't LA. I wanted to say I was going with Utah. Oh, it was Utah. Yeah, it was. And yep. I've decided that I'm out on Quinn Snyder's. Uh, lineup rotations. He he's very consistently staggered. Uh, Gobert with Conley, kind of tethering them together, and then had Donovan Mitchell off. And you know it makes sense in a regular season you got to keep stars on. Uh, but then when you look at the playoff on-off numbers, and he tried to play all three of them together, it wasn't quite as as strong as you would hope. And I was just watching them play Chicago, and they were down by about five, and he had consistently staggered them all through the first and second, and then they come in together. And Mitchell and Gobert just blow the lid off Chicago, take the lead by halftime. Um, you know, it was like a 17-2 run or something. And he just, he has a reluctance to play his stars together during the season. And I think that's going to come back to bite them if you need to switch to doing that in the playoffs. And so that is, that's kind of my take is that I'm no longer as high on the Jazz. And I might've been one of the higher people on the Jazz, but I still think, I still think Brooklyn figures it out and makes the finals and wins so i'm sticking with brooklyn i felt very strongly with uh, brooklyn nets like i thought they were gonna be dominant this season and it doesn't really look that well to, uh, so far um so that's one of the teams that i'm definitely lower on now than it was preseason. i was i was sure they were gonna win this season but golden state also looks very interesting like i had, I had no expectations for them going into this season um i expected lagos to win the west that doesn't look like the case. <laughs> so I guess Golden State is one of the biggest surprises for me. Yeah, I'm with you. I also was high on Brooklyn and, you know, they haven't... I'm, I'm giving them time. Look, Harden yeah. likes to take his, his months to get himself to where he needs to be. So don't write off uh, Brooklyn just yet. He's just not getting downhill very much. And so I think that once that happens, you know, a lot of more easy shots, a lot more three-pointers, less burden on KD. I think that they'll be in pretty good shape. But some of their role guys haven't been as good as you might hope. And mm-hmm. then with the Lakers, it's like the Westbrook thing has been pretty much as bad as it could be. So I yeah. think that's, yeah. you know, I'm with you on that part of it. But what about you? Yeah, I, I agree with you on the on the Brooklyn point. Like, you got to give them time. I think another thing that they're sort of struggling with is, you know, they got all these veterans that expect to play, and Nash is, I don't know, maybe going a little bit entitlement minutes, you know. LaMarcus Aldridge is a you know an NBA legend. You know, you've got to play him. Um, maybe come playoff time, they tend more to, you know, Bruce Brown and, and go back to that Bruce Brown at the five, I guess. So, yeah, I think give give Brooklyn time. They're still got to be probably my pick just because, you know, there's no one that's really separating themselves um, unless you want to say Bucks again. And the West is just so wide open, you know. I did go with my homerism and cho- and chose the Clippers combined with a little bit of um, Nate Silver and 538 gassing me up on the on their title odds. 
the, the West is just so hard to pick at the moment. Like you want to yeah. say the Lakers, I, w- I want to say the same thing that we just said about Brooklyn and say, you know, give them time. Russ always starts slow. They've, you know, this is a massive change that they've got to integrate this guy. And, you know, LeBron and AD are still the best, you know, probably the best duo in the league. Um, so you want to, you know, give them time and, and give them some some optimism. But man, it's it's hard to hard to make a call in the West. Yeah, we know the Clippers are done, man. It's it's hard. I have been to a couple of their games, <laughs> yep. and I, yeah, like if, yeah, if Paul George is hot, they're very watchable and they're pretty fun. If not, it can get dark real early, you know. And yeah, I would like to be more than a half game above Houston right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> um, they got they got OKC tonight, so you'll be a, you'll be a game up after that. <laughs> yeah, but you know, with the, with the Lakers. I mean, they just haven't looked like a championship team yet. I mean, the Westbrook thing has been pretty tough to watch, especially in person. But they have had some flashes. Like when Melo is hitting, catching the shoot threes, and they're playing AD at the five, LeBron's got the ball in his hands. Hey, it like kind of makes sense. It kind of works. But it, they just feel very rickety. You know, it's like any moment, the whole thing could just kind of fall to pieces. They've already had a number of injury issues. And they're so old as a team. I, I think that's just what makes me nervous. I think Brooklyn and Utah might be the favorites right now. And I mean, Milwaukee's obviously in the mix. Miami, too, is the team that's probably surprised me a little bit more than I expected. Yeah. A really strong start. They had a completely cursed year last year coming off the bubble. And they have a nice proven formula. Jimmy's really good. You know, I mean, he's one of the guys who I would take over almost anybody for a playoff series. I'd rather have Jimmy for a playoff series than like a guy like Joel Embiid. And so, you know, you're in that kind of a mix where it's like, all right, well, if they can get there, everybody's healthy. They've got real savvy uh, point guard with Kyle Lowry. And then Bam plays to his capabilities and, and looks better than he did in last year's playoffs, which wouldn't be very difficult because he was kind of so disappointing. You know, they could be a really tough out. But, um, you know, I, other than that, I haven't seen, I haven't panicked yet. There's not been a team where yeah. I was like, oh, I got to run away from these guys ASAP. I think probably the closest to that would be the Lakers. But they're still going to be a factor. You know, I mean, LeBron has been working his way into it. And uh, Anthony Davis is still a tough cover for anybody in a playoff series. I know. As soon as you say, yeah, as long as Melo's hitting shots, they look good. Yeah. That just just fills me with yeah. so much fear yeah. and dread. Kind of get the same thing with the Clippers, right? It's like, you know, we, we, we'll we figure it out as soon as we get consistent scoring from Reggie Jackson and Marcus Morris. Like Eric Bledsoe, like, please stop doing a Nolan Smith every single night. I mean, that guy, just he's tough <laughs> to watch too. But anyway. Well, Ben, thank you so much for joining us. This will probably be our most shared episode. They can hear you at the GOAT podcast, Greatest of All Talk. Uh, It's a subscription pod. They can find your writing on Washington Post. Uh, If you enjoyed this pod, please give us a like or a follow. Five-star ratings. Uh, You can email us at hoopstemple at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you guys. Thank you. And thanks again, Ben. Gentlemen, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. And uh, we'll talk soon. Thank you, guys. It's been great.